0: I'm going to start with a story. This is, um, this is a story of the, from my life. Before I did all this, a long time ago, one of the many different jobs that I had was something called a product manager. Now, a product manager is in charge of a product, right? That makes sense. But depending on your company, I was in a tech company, uh, you were kind of relegated to the side. You had like six people reporting to you until your product got ready to launch and then suddenly became the most important person in the corporation because that had to be successful. I know, have you ever seen those uh, World War II movies, like the, like, uh, the Memphis Belle or something, when the bomber's flying over the target and the pilot takes his hands off the yoke and the bombardier actually flies the plane temporarily while they release the bombs? That's kind of what the product manager was. For, you know, For 15 seconds, you were important, and then you went back to obscurity. Uh, but so we, we got close to launching my product, and all of a sudden everybody reported to me, you know, for a moment in time, so that, because we had to get this thing out, and, and every you know, the whole company's at my disposal, which I thought was pretty cool and really the way things always should be. But um, as it turns out, some people kind of resent that when it happens. And I have a very good friend who was an engineer. He says, You know, people hate you right now, right? I said, Me? Why would anybody hate me? I'm just a lovable guy. Why? He says, Because people who should not have to report to you have to report to you right now. I said, I don't think that. He said, do you know how people view product managers in Silicon Valley? And so he tells me this story. And this story isn't quite um, quite a Christian story, but I'll try to clean it up <laughs> as I can. Uh, but anyway, so the story is that a product manager, a vice president of development, and an engineer were all going to lunch. And there was during a product launch, they were just gonna walk down to a taco stand nearby and come back and eat at their desk, that's pretty real to life. And on the way out, they uh, the engineer sees this blue bottle, and he picks it up, even though did, people tell him not to, because engineers like to do that. And he rubs it, and a genie pops out. And a genie looks at them and says, "Who rubbed the lamp?" And the vice president of engineering said, "We all did, because they're used to taking credit for other people's work." And uh, so anyway, so the genie said, "Well, this is unusual. Usually, what I do is I, I'll give three wishes. I'll tell you what. I'll give each of you one wish." And so the engineer goes, "Oh, me first. Me first. I want to go." Uh, I want to be right now on a Harley Davidson custom uh, ultra glide. In fact I have a picture of it on my web on my my my, uh, my cubicle right now. I want that Harley Davidson going down Highway 101 and uh, the cover girl from um, let's say April of Thunder Roads magazine uh, on the back, you know, and with her arms around me and the wind in my hair. That's what I want. And the genie says, um, okay, and he blinks and poof, the engineer disappears. Where'd he go? Well, he's on highway one a run right now on his electric glide. And the engineer uh, developer, uh, the de- vice president of engineering says, wait, I, uh, okay, my turn. Now my turn. I want to be on a 35-foot catamaran. Uh, in the Caribbean, I want to have a spinnaker going and a beam reach, which is the, the soft sail. And as my crew, I want, um, let's say, the Victoria's Secret cover models in swim gear. And uh, the genie goes, okay, poof, he disappears. And he turns to the product manager and says, and what would you like? And the product manager looks at the genie, looks at his watch, and says, I would like both those guys back at their desk after lunch. Okay, and that's. So this is uh, so I uh, you know you probably think, you're sitting there thinking now, why in the world would anybody in their right mind start a sermon with that story? Well, two things, first of all, never said I was in my right mind. Second of all, um, I've been doing a lot of thought lately about wish fulfillment, and uh, there's gonna, gonna be a long wind up to get into Acts, don't panic, but um, I've been thinking about it. I've, I've been talking uh, to some people about this, and we've kind of been going back and forth, but um, I think that honestly, the reason I'm thinking about this is because a lot of people kind of bring this idea into Christianity. In fact, if we could take a Christian and strap him to a heart detector, you know, not like a lie detector, but a heart detector, so we could really see what is in um, a Christian's heart, and we ask him this question, I think we get some interesting answers. Is God really just your genie, and is prayer really just your means of wish fulfillment? Because I think that honestly, most Christians, if they were honest, would say to some degree, this is yes. Yeah. Because uh, we want God to give us what we want. And in kind of our model is, uh, because he loves us, see he, he should have never told us he loves us unconditionally. Because once we knew that, we could use that against him. If you love me, God, you'll give me what I want. See, that's how it works. If you love me, you're going to give me this. It ha- has to be that way because you love me. And it doesn't matter how bad I am because you said you love me unconditionally. So I can ask you for anything, anytime, and you have to give it to me. That's kind of our, our model. And as we get more mature as Christians, we don't change the model. We just change what we ask for right? So we know better than ask for bubble gum or the greatest ice cream cone. That's what a kid would do. Uh, we know better ask for carnal things because that's what a sinner would do. We become good mature Christians, so we ask for things that sound better, more altruistic, and we're asking God always for what's good. You know, we're only asking for, for the good things. It's like when they ask Miss America for her wish for the world, and she always says, I wish for world peace, right? We all, we, we've learned how to, to put our wishes in the right form, So it doesn't sound so terribly bad, but at the end of the day, even if we're just telling God, could you please move the storm so we get a praise fest, it's still just a wish fulfillment. We actually get angry with God when he doesn't. What's going on? Well, why is it raining? I don't understand. I asked you to not let it rain today, God. Why are you letting it rain? What's going on? And uh, this is kind of what gets into uh, our thinking. And I was talking to somebody, and I said, you know, this is a problem with Christians, that we think that God's a genie doing wish fulfillment, but he's, he isn't. That never shows up in the Bible. And as I was looking at uh, the lesson this week, I thought, wait a minute. He does one time. One time that I can think of in the Bible God literally shows up and does this. It, it shows up two times in the Bible, but it's the same story. And it's a story probably a lot of you know, because this was a famous story that they would do in like vacation Bible school or CD, uh, CCD class for those of you who were raised Catholic. Uh, it's a story of Solomon, right? Some of you may, may remember. Let me set it for you real quick. Solomon was a boy king or at least a teenager king, kind of young. Uh, he was pushed into the throne a little bit early because David, his father, who was the greatest king Israel had ever known, possibly, arguably, one of the top ten greatest kings of all time. He was following in his footsteps, but David grew ill. So they kind of had to accelerate letting Solomon become king, and Solomon was scared to death of making a mistake. We all know that, right, because we all have done the little flanagrams and we colored the things in Sunday school, right? And so um, here here it comes, and so in 1 Kings 3.5, this also shows up in 2 Chronicles, at Gibeon, that's where it was, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, and God said to him, ask, what shall I give you? This is as close as I've ever seen God coming to play the part of a genie. Ask, what do you want? Whatever you want, I will give you. And I'm thinking, man, how does Solomon get that kind of an offer? I, I know he's king of Israel, but I've lived a long time. I've never had that offer. God has never come to and he say, hey, what do you want, Mark? Just tell me, I'll do it. one thing, whatever you want. Man, would that be great? I not only have never had God come to me and ask that question, I don't know anybody he's asked that question to. Uh, So I'm like, uh, how does Solomon get to be that? And the reason I'm thinking about this is because as we move forward in our Christian life, we start asking God for better things, but we're still doing the same thing. You know, I, I would love to see signs and wonders coming from people in this church. I would love to pray for that right? God, you know, I, I want to see the, 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 the gift of healing restored to the church. I, I want to see the gift of wisdom, the gift of prophetic word. I, I want to see that return to your church. I want to see it. And we're asking for things. And really, we're just saying, give us our heart's desire. But it's a good desire. Why won't you give it to us? I don't understand. Why don't you come to us and make that? Hey, what gift of the spirit would you like me to double in your life? And just something like that. Why, why don't we ever get that? And so I'm, I was wondering about that. I was praying about that. And, and I, I was asking God, and he says, did you read the whole passage? Like, no, there's more? Well, I didn't know there was more. And here's what we do in the Bible. We kind of skip over the boring parts. We want to get to the heart of the matter. And I was always taught that this was the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter was God, at, God gave him a chance for anything, and Solomon chose wisdom. In fact, the way I was taught is kind of like, well, if he hadn't chosen wisdom, God would have said no. But I don't believe that's true. I think God would have literally given him whatever he asked. I think God just said, I don't think this was a test. I think he came to him and says, what do you want? And what he asked for is wisdom, famously. He said, I don't know how to be king. Make, make me wise. And God was so pleased with his answer that uh, he said, you know what? I'm not going to give you wisdom. I'll give you what you didn't ask for. I'll give you fame, fortune, and a long life. And he does. Solomon becomes famous for being wise. People would travel, you know, this is documented outside the Bible. People traveled from other countries just to get his opinion on things. He was just that wise. Okay, so why then did God come and offer that to him? It, was, it turned out well, but why would he do that? And if I back up in the story, I found out the story wasn't the way I remembered it. I thought God came to him on the, on the eve of his inauguration as king. You know, a little 12, 13-year-old boy Shaking in his boots, waiting to go out there and be crowned king, and God said, "What can I do for you?" And Solomon said, "Wisdom, but that's not what happens." Actually, the Bible is very clear that this thing that we looked at that's going about asking whatever you want, takes place after Solomon has established himself as king. He's not just crowned king. He's made everybody in Jerusalem realize he is the king. He has had his kingdom established. That's when this happens. like, wow, why is it happening now? You would have thought God come before all that. First of all, just so you know, uh, Solomon is probably the second son of Bathsheba. Uh, we know he's not the first son because the first son dies in, childhood, in, in early days of, of infanthood. Uh, but it's probably the second, which wouldn't give him a very strong claim on the throne, except David wanted him to be king. And so uh, there's a lot of people who say, well, there's better claims. People are older and been around for longer, they're wiser, they're not young, and so there are a lot of people who kind of fought Solomon becoming king, and he established his kingdom, and you can imagine how that was done. There is some some blood spilled in that as well. So he establishes his kingdom, and then God comes to him and asks, but that's not what happens. There's a really important part that gets missed, and this is uh, a little bit confusing. Let me walk you through it. Right before this, in fact, in some translations, there's a so, So it's like, they tell this and they say, so God came to him in a dream. Like, this is a cause and effect. So he says this, he says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking the statutes of his father David, though he did sacrifice and burn incense at the high places. What's that all about? Well, what happened is David had a personal relationship, a very good relationship with God Almighty. David met the God Almighty in a sheep field. That's when the Holy Spirit came to him and and he kind of started out. And he grew up knowing who God was. And he had a very good working relationship with God. And he praised him in the cave. And he praised him in the high places. And he praised him anywhere, right? And so that's the relationship David had. That's not the relationship Solomon had. Solomon kind of took the thinking of the religions around them. If you're going to praise God, you've got to do it in the right place. If you're going to worship God, if you're going to ask him questions, you need to go to the right place. And the high places were the right place because, you know, you're close to heaven. He can hear you better. So all the pagans believed that the high places were where you had to make the sacrifices and, and, and do the offerings. And Solomon kind of bought into that. The Bible's saying he believed what David told him, but he did not have the working relationship with God that David had. But he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there since that was the great high place. This is as high as you get. This is it. He goes there. Now, watch this. Solomon offered a 1,000 burnt offerings on that altar. This is unheard of. This never happened. David never does this. Nobody does this. I I don't want to go through the details, but we're talking about burnt offerings. You have to have a thousand altars. You have to have a thousand, whatever you're offering, sheep, lamb, whatever. You have to bring those. You have to slaughter them. You have to put them there. You have to put the wood. You have to light the fire. This is a task. This isn't something that goes by in a minute. This is Solomon decided, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it in such a way, it may take a day or two, but all the people are going to stay there and they're going to watch it. Why? Why? because he was giving thanks to God for establishing his kingdom. He was saying, you know what? I know there are other people who have a better claim to the throne, but God, God, God made me king. And I'm going to show thanks to him so everybody can see it. I don't care who knows it. I want everybody to know it. I want everybody to know that I'm grateful to the high king of heaven and everything I have is because of the high king of heaven. And he was extravagant in his thanks to God. And then God says, thanks for that. What can I do for you? See, it was a cause and effect. Uh, sometimes God's display of great power comes in response to a moment of quiet obedience. Nobody told Solomon to do this. He just did it. It wasn't, he, he didn't get this from David. David never did it. He said, you know what? I want to really let out my thanks to God and one offering's not enough. I don't want some kind of quiet ceremony with just my close friends and the priest there. Man, I want everybody to come. I want them to see how thankful I am to God. And he let it out. When was the last time you were extravagantly thankful to God? Wherever. See, I have a problem with this too. Most of my prayers have a to-do list for God in them. I'm not talking about you know, just singing some praise songs. I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to be extravagant in my praise to God. I'm going to be extravagant to say, God, thank you. I'm not here to ask you for anything. I just want to thank you for what you've already done. God, you know what? It rained yesterday, but I'm thanking you that everybody seemed to enjoy themselves. I'm thanking you so no one got injured. You know, I'm, I'm thanking you that we're able to do that in this country without worrying about machine gun fire coming our way. You know, thunder's one thing. AK-47 is a whole different story. We don't have that in this country. I thank you, Lord, for what we're able to do. I thank you that we were able to pay for all that stuff because of what you've provided. I thank you for the people who want to sit in the mud and praise you in the rain. I thank you for the musicians who are willing to say, you know what, we're going to stick around. I just thank you for everything that happened yesterday. Instead of complaining that it rained, we thank God for what happened. How many times have we been extravagantly thankful to the Lord? Have you ever taken an hour of your day on a Sunday, which is supposed to be set aside and holy? I'm just going to take one hour. I'm going to load up my playlist with grateful songs, and I'm just going to play it and sing your name. And I'm going to look through the, I'm going to you, I could do some work before you do this. And go on Google and find all the thankful psalms. And in between this, the songs you're playing, read out the thankful psalms, O oh Lord. I'm not here to ask for anything. I'm just here to thank you for everything. Have we ever done that? Would we do that? Would we even get together as a congregation and do that? Solomon did that, right? And because of that, God was moved to say, this is a king I can work with. And he came in and says, what can I do for you? So we have to understand that if we're looking at miracles, and we're going to get to the book of Acts now. See, I told you we'd get there. If we're looking at the miracles of the book of Acts, and we're wondering why we don't see them today, we need to look for the obedience that precedes the miracle. Because it's there. It's almost always there in the scripture. You may have to back up a verse. But we need to start looking because we'll start seeing that the people who are seeing the miracles we want to see live differently than we do. They had their heart turned to God in a way that ours isn't yet turned to God. And because of that, they were able to see miracles because of that. Not because God favors them, but because we won't see the miracles unless we do that. Okay, so now let's go to the book of Acts. We were, we've been following when, when, when everything happened, and the church got split up and persecuted and, and everybody went scattering. The, the narrative has been following this guy named Philip. There's actually two Philips mentioned in the New Testament. One's a disciple, but most people believe this was the Philip who got promoted to be one of the seven. That's, that's who they believe he is. And so he went down to Samaria, which is a place most Jews wouldn't go because those were half breeds and they kind of have a bunch of different things mixed in with their religions and Jews stayed away from them. But Philip went straight to there. He started to preach and a revival broke out. And this huge church comes out of nowhere in Samaria. It was so big they had to send more people down from Jerusalem to help them get started because, wow, look at this. Who would have thought of that? Well, Philip thought of that somehow. We don't know what went into that, but somehow, and then he moves on. Now, he's just, in, he's just really doing amazing things. There's a reason why the narrative's following him, folks. He's the most important person right now because he's doing the most important things. That's why the narrative is following him. So he's killing it out there, not of the other 12 apostles, you know. And so here he comes, and he's moving through. He's moving out of Samaria, and he's going actually back to Jerusalem. He's like, well, that was fun. Let me see what else. And he's going along. Now, I want you to see what happens next. This is Acts 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. He's walking back to Jerusalem, saying, no, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And then the Bible puts this in here, just in case you don't know what they're talking about. This was a desert road, meaning that he's sending Philip to a wilderness. How's that for a thank you for your work in Samaria? I hate the wilderness. I hate going in the wilderness, right? Here's here's Philip, the only guy really doing anything, He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and they're going, I want you to go to the wilderness. Man, are you kidding me? Can Matthias not go to the wilderness? He's not doing anything. He probably needs the wilderness. Why are you saying me to the wilderness? That's what I would say. God, you can't interrupt me now. I've got it going right now. This is no time to stop. I think maybe when you say wilderness, you mean Nazareth. I'll go to Nazareth, right? We kind of re- reinterpret what God says. Maybe I'm going to go do that. But that's not what Philip does. You know what Philip does? He says, Okay. And he heads on out. So he got up and went. There's no hesitation. Oh, you want me to, to the wilderness? Cool, I'll go there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit said to go there. That's why. But the Holy Spirit didn't tell you what's going to happen there. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to tell me what's going to happen. He told me where. Hallelujah, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. Off he goes. Now, there's actually a reason why he's sending him to the wilderness, and it's not what normally we get put in the wilderness for. He actually has somebody he wants him to meet in the wilderness. But he didn't tell Philip that. He just takes off. And then now the camera shifts. This is a movie. The camera shifts. And uh, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the queen, who was in charge of all of her treasury. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, this is a weird sentence, by the way, because Ethiopian is a black Gentile. He was, he was a eunuch, but probably not, by the way. The eunuch, believe it or not, guys, you're going to have a hard time believing this, knowing what a eunuch is. But that was considered an honorary term back then. I don't know, don't know why. It's no, no honor I'd want to have. But the reason why it was an honorary term was that meant they were completely trusted by the king. So in Ethiopia, and you could understand why that'd be, but uh, you, know, you completely can trust him. Although, I don't know, the Game of Thrones has taught us nothing, you can't trust eunuchs. But um, the, the whole point of, of, of that title was you can trust him with anything. And so it's basically saying he's a trustworthy official of the queen is what what this actually means. And the reason we believe that is because he went to Jerusalem to worship, which is not just the city of, he actually went to the temple, and he would not have been allowed in the temple if he's a real eunuch. So anyway, but he'd come there to worship. Here's what's weird. Why? He wasn't Jews. He wasn't a Jew, and the queen wasn't Jewish. Why was he coming to Jerusalem to worship? The Bible doesn't explain this, but I believe that what's happened is that he's a convert. He's an educated man. He's in charge of the treasury. He's highly educated. And I believe he's running some Jews or maybe even just running the first five books of the Bible, which were fairly well known at that time, the Law of Moses. And maybe he just read about this great God, Jehovah. He's like, this must be the real God. I want to go worship him. And he, on his own, he created this trip to Jerusalem. He probably, you know, covered it some way. I need to go check on something. But he wanted to go to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping Jehovah. He probably traveled for a long time to get there because he couldn't take a plane. And he may have even been there when Jesus Christ was crucified. Because remember, this was just kind of contemporary of that. He certainly would have been there when Stephen was killed. So he goes to Jerusalem to worship God. He was willing to travel great distances to do that. He gets there hoping that the people in that temple can explain maybe some questions he has. And he sees the entire city's in in, in an uproar because this guy named Jesus Christ was claiming to be the Messiah and they had to kill him for it. And then this whole group of people started gathering there believing that Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, and signs and wonders are happening. And so to break it up, they killed Stephen. And he's pressed one question What's a Messiah? Because if you start in the first five books of the Bible, you don't run into the Messiah. And if he knew the first five books of the Bible, that would be remarkable. The, I, the Messiah doesn't show up. Actually, he shows up in the Psalms, but he doesn't, you don't know that until Isaiah comes along. So really, he doesn't show up until the book of Isaiah, much later in, in Jewish writings. So it's very possible he doesn't even know who the Messiah is. Now he has a lot of questions. He came here for answers, and all he has is more questions. Who's Messiah? Why are you guys killing this guy claiming to be a sign? Why are these people still believing it? Why are you killing these people? He had all these questions, right? He gets none of them answered. So he went to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord and to find out who he is. He goes to the greatest church in the land, the highest place, the highest of the high places. (coughs) To find out who God is, he finds nothing. He's turning around and coming back home. He's in the wilderness and God sends him his answer. I want you to see what God's doing here. So, um, we have to understand that God does not meet us based on where our feet are. (laughs) He meets us based on where our heart is. And and the other thing that's interesting to me, uh, as we're going to see, is that as he's there, uh, he is reading the prophet Isaiah. That's the next verse in in Acts 8. As he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he probably wasn't moving at this point. They probably had to pull it out of a ditch or something. He's just sitting in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, and he was reading it out loud, by the way, and the Spirit of the Lord said, oh, good, you see that guy right there in the chariot? Go down there. So Philip shows up there. Okay, I'm here. What now? I see that guy in the chariot? Oh, that black Gentile? Yeah, okay, go there. Now, by the way, at this point in, in in the Christian church's life, Gentiles were still considered unclean. Peter would still have a problem with this for some time, yet even Paul kind of sort of had a problem with it when he starts out. Their, Gentiles were still a little bit unclean. It was Jews first, then Gentiles, and they started with the Jews, right? Philip doesn't seem to care. Oh, can we go down and talk to a Gentile? Cool, I'll go there. Look at, look at Philip's heart. He's like, okay, I need you to go there. He doesn't go tell him. He says, go join him. Go join him in his chariot. So um, he goes down and Philip ran up and he sees him reading. He heard him reading Isaiah. So he's reading it out loud. This is probably not his native tongue. And so he's reading it out loud, uh, trying to figure it out. If any of you have written, read something really hard, sometimes you read it out loud so you can try to figure it out. He's sitting here reading it. Uh, and I believe, by the way, and there's, I have no scripture to back this up, I believe the reason he had been there so long was because he was waiting for a scribe to finish his copy of the book of Isaiah. I believe that when he heard about the Messiah, he became interested in him. Now he has the money. And in those days, you didn't just say, oh, I'll go down to the store and pick up a book of Isaiah. That's not how it worked. You had to go to the temple and pay a scribe to painstakingly copy a book of Isaiah, unless they happen to have a couple ready. You could buy one. I believe he had to wait. And now he's got his precious book that's going to tell him about the Messiah. And I don't know if he ever read the book of Messiah, but it's hard reading. And it's not in his native language. And he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading it. And Philip walks up. And I love what he says. Do you understand that? He doesn't, he doesn't like, well, what's a Gentile doing reading the book of Isaiah out loud in the middle of the wilderness? He doesn't say that at all. He says, hey, do you understand that? And what does the guy said? The Ethiopian looks and says, no, how could I? I'm going to need a guide for this. This is too complicated for me. Somebody needs to explain it to me. Now, here's what's really, really cool. There's probably four people on the planet who could explain that to him, and one of them is Philip. God made an arrangement to send Philip into the wilderness to meet this guy on his way back because he wanted to answer the question the man had in his heart. Who is the Messiah? And I want you to see how he got his question answered. Not at church. He gets his question answered in the wilderness. How? By reading the word of the Lord. Is this striking home with anybody? Do you have questions you've been dying to ask God? And you have things burning in your heart, and you're trying to get answers to the questions? Here's how this man got the answer to his question. He was reading the word of the Lord on his own in the middle of the wilderness, and God met him there. Because that's what God does. He wants us. He meets us in the most unlikely places for one reason. He wants wants us to know he arranged the meeting. See, if you're in a group setting... And, and it kind of gets emotional, which sometimes has it, happened here, you know, because things going on in the church or something, and, you know, we've shed tears together as, as a congregation. We've, we've, we've rejoiced as, as a congregation. You can get swept up in that emotion. The problem is when you leave, you start wondering, was that real? Was that the spirit moving? Or is that just emotion? A lot of churches know this and actually set up s- things to, to fake emotions to get the people to react. That's a true story. And so uh, sometimes you will have this emotional experience and you'll think it was triggered by a spiritual experience, but that's not how it works. Spiritual experience will trigger an emotional reaction, but an emotional reaction will never turn into something spiritual. It's not how it works. And so what's happened is God says, I'm not going to tell you what you want to know in Jerusalem. I don't want you to think that it's coming from men. I'm going to do it in such a way that only God could do it. I'm going to have you confused in the wilderness, and I'm going to send a person to talk to you and explain everything to you. This is how God works. And I have said this before, but it bears repeating. The sermons you hear here, hear, the songs you sing here, won't change your life as much as the scripture you le- read when you leave here. If you're not in God's word, you're not getting anywhere. If you're waiting for me to tell you what you need to know, you're listening to the wrong person. I can't do it. God wants to meet you where you are, even if it's the wilderness, even though, boy, there's been times I've read the Bible and it felt like it was a different language, right? I mean, even saying, I don't get this at all. God wants to meet you there because he's a personal God. He specifically put us in a place put Philip in a place where he could reveal this to this Ethiopian, and he made sure that it was not the education of men. This isn't some preacher's thought. This isn't a rabbi's thought. This isn't a Pharisee. This isn't a Sadducee's. I know you respect them and revere them, and that's why you went there, but the reality is the education of men cannot reveal the heart of God because I'm going to reveal myself to you. Now, we don't know who this guy is. He's never mentioned again in the Bible. Early church tradition has, he he went back to Ethiopia and started a church there and and became a missionary in Ethiopia. It's a pleasant thought, and it may have happened, But the Bible never tells us what happens. All I know is this guy's heart must have been amazing because God stepped out of everything and said, I'm gonna answer this guy's questions. It's amazing what God goes through to people whose heart is seriously looking for him and earnestly looking for him. But I want you to also know this. If Philip takes time for confirmation before he goes to the wilderness, this meeting never happens. God has arranged them to intersect on a course. The only thing that makes this possible is Philip's quick response to the, to the Lord. See, I'm, I'm not that quick. Really? You want to go to the wilderness, Lord? I must not have heard you right. I'm going to wait I get two more confirmations. I'm going to wait until I get the right song being played on the radio. And I'm going to wait until I get some kind of scripture reference. I'll do it when I'm sure it's you, Lord. I'm going to wait. If Philip had done that, they would have never met. This only happens because Philip said, you want me to go there? Cool, I'm on my way. Right? And that's, because, that's what makes them intersect. Because I mean, God's moving. God has arranged this meeting. I had a preacher tell a story once. I don't even know if it's true, but it's a great story, so I'll tell you. Um, he and his wife early in their ministry were struggling, and uh, they didn't have enough money for the electric bill. And the wife was saying, you know, you can ask my father for it. You know, he'll give us the money. He said, I don't want to ask your father. I want to pray for it. I want to, to say, Heavenly Father. So they're praying for a miracle, you know, and uh, nothing. You know, a couple things that they thought might come through but didn't. And so finally he gives in. He says, Okay, okay, okay. I, I'll, I'll swallow my pride. I'll humble myself. I'll go to your father and I'll ask for money so we can pay our electric bill. So on the way out the door to meet your father, he stops off the, post, the mailbox and he picks up his mail and there is a hand-addressed envelope there, which was unusual. It wasn't the bills, you know, you kind of, because I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You flip through the bills. And, but it had handwritten, handwritten, made him stop. He opened it up, and there was a check in there with a little tiny note attached, no name. God told me to send this to you. And it was for the exact amount of his electric bill. And he sat there and wept. He said, God, you are so great. Right at the moment, of this great need, you are such a great God. And God spoke to him and said, that's nothing. I use the U.S. post office to get it to you on time. I mean, God's just that good, right? I mean, he's that good. He, he can get there no matter what. Anyway, um, so what happens is now Philip is invited to come up, and he starts with that passage he was reading. He goes, well, let me tell you about that. And then he just goes through it, and he goes through everything. But watch the passage that was confusing this guy. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. Of course, this is about Jesus, right? In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who will speak for his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? What that's saying is, you know, the big part of the Jewish, Jewish uh, tradition is that when you pass away, someone needs to take over uh, your family. But he didn't have anybody. He didn't mean descendants either. But, you know, this is the, it's just kind of the, the, the prophet trying to say, there's no one, he's gone. He was, his life was taken from earth before he could even have descendants. It wasn't fair. What happened to him was not fair or not right. And the eunuch says to Philip, now tell me, Who's the prophet speaking of? Because some people say he's speaking of himself or he's speaking about someone else because this doesn't match up with what I know about Isaiah. So he's really confused. How's he talking? What's this about? And Philip then starts at the beginning of scripture and he just starts telling him who Jesus is. Oh, let me tell you about the Messiah. And he goes and he tells him about the Messiah and all this is through and and they're they're moving now right and, and 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 he's just listening every question he has is being answered and so so that jesus they crucified was the tr- telling the truth he really is the messiah of course he isn't he's showed him in scripture how it had to be true and he's telling them about the things that were happening and they're coming by and, and you know he's, he's hearing about all this stuff and they come by and they see water and the eunuch says wait a minute what would stop me from getting on this chariot right now going down there and getting baptized I want you to see what this guy's heart is. What would stop me from going right there, right now, and getting baptized? And I love the fact that a heart turned to God will always see a way of worshiping him. We come across water, and he sees it as an opportunity to say, I want to, you know what? I like this. I want to do that. Can I do this here? You said water. That's water. Can I do this right now? And Philip says, sure. If you believe in your heart, we could do that. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of the Lord, we can baptize you right now. And the eunuch says, I do. Let's go his heart's turned to God and so they go down and uh, he ordered the chariot to stop they both went down the water and Philip as well as the eunuch of course he cuts in the water It's how you have to do it and he baptizes him it's like this is a great so like, he's like I'm convinced let's go let's do this now watch what happens next this is bizarre and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away so he gets baptized he comes up and then, boom he's gone and the eunuch's like Whoa. the eunuch doesn't even care He's like, oh, cool. He's like, everything to him is like, this is God. He can do anything he wants. And so he no longer saw him, but he went his way rejoicing. He came and did his job. He told me about Jesus, and now I'm a, now I'm a believer in the way. And he gets back in his chariot, and he goes out as the Ethiopian you know, treasurer. He comes back out, a child of the king, climbs up in the chariot, and says, let's go. And he's praising the Lord. He so says, I got all my questions answered. God met me right here. But here's what's funny to me. Most people see water in the wilderness, and they see it's God's provision in their lives. Hallelujah. Look at this. We're thirsty. We're coming along. Are you thirsty? You've been talking a long time. Look, there's water. We can fill our canteens. Isn't this great? God has provided this for our use. But that man saw that water and thought, you know what? I can use this to get closer to God. Everything in your life changes when your your mind just turns towards God. I, I believe Philip was like, yeah, he's getting it, right? When you see God's provision in your life, what do you think of? I can fill my canteen? all right now I can get baptized that's great that's absolutely great and I, I don't, we don't we know where uh Peter ends up uh he finds himself uh way out there in some little city called Azotus and I believe that he was going to end up there anyway and, and because all this happened he ended up there a day sooner that's just my little belief you know it's like people said Philip how'd you get here so soon uh Holy Spirit just brought me here you know he picks him up 20 miles away is where we see Philip arrive again God just says, good job picks him up moves him okay now you're back on that road Thanks for meeting that guy. We were able to do good things because of that. Listen, the whole point of this is that that doesn't happen unless Philip is obedient to the Lord. When we say, boy, I want to be used by God like that. I want God to use me in miracles like that. That'd be awesome. Or, are we listening to the voice and, obe- and obeying the voice? It was a simple thing. I need to go to this road. I'm on my way. It was a simple thing, but without it, this whole miracle doesn't happen. And throughout the Bible, you'll see that these miracles happen because people have simple moments of obedience. Hebrews 13, I'll close with this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor I will ever forsake you. But we have a thing for the things of this world. And we can never seem to get content. And because of that, we are distracted by the things of this world. We're distracted by things that God's trying to get us to not worry about. So I told you I'd take care of you. Can I have your attention now? If, if you just uh, trust me that I'll take care of you, then and give me your attention. We can do what matters. We can, we can build a relationship that lasts beyond this earth. And we're saying, well, we'll get to that, God. But first this. I have a wish I need for you to fulfill. God has a wish too. And his wish is that you just love him and he loves you. Can we get to there, he says? What is in your life that is keeping you from being content? What is it that keeps pulling you away? And because of this. You're not hearing God's voice speak to you. Would you all please pray with me?